another example which um which exhibits uh, how many slaves they had in their employ is the adaidin ka jhopra which is uh, it's in ajmer and it was a group of three or four temples and uh, when uh, when gauri defeated uh, prithviraj chauhan he passed through ajmer and he came across this uh, temple complex and he said i want this converted into a mosque in 60 hours and he told uh, he told his uh, he told his you know slave general abak and uh, abak took uh, you know 80000 70000 how many even men slave men they had and he converted the entire thing into a mosque in 60 hours can you imagine how many men it took yeah so today i'm going to talk about the history of islamic slave trade in india so i'm briefly going to go over uh, how, the condition of slaves in pre islamic india first um just to give an overview of what, what changed when uh the institution of islamic slavery set in uh, and then we're going to go into obviously the theological justification all the compendia on uh, islamic law uh that covers slavery and then we're going to just briefly touch on the origins of racial prejudice uh against hindus in uh, um you know islamic literature and persian literature um and then we're going to uh going to uh the slave markets in central asia which were the main uh centers at which uh, indian uh, slaves were traded and then um, then we're going to go into i'll just i'm not i'm not doing this in chronological order but i'll just go over history and the major conquests that led to the enslavement of a large number of indians and then i'll uh, go into uh some just a small note on uh, portuguese slavery and uh, some of the um, and then some of the rulers after that the conquests after that then uh, uh, a note on foreign and indigenous slaves how they were treated the differences in treatment um, in india and then the prices of slaves which we don't have much information on but i do uh, i did collect uh, what is available then we'll go into all the avenues in which uh, slaves were employed in uh, not just uh, medieval india but uh, uh also uh in central asia so uh for example like uh, in construction mostly islamic architecture and then uh, their employment is uh, in the court in the royal courts and in nobil- uh, nobility's uh, families as domestic labor and then we'll go into sex slavery and concubinage and then we'll go into the trade of eunuchs which is a fairly large topic but i tried to get some of the most uh pertinent information just for uh, this talk and you can read more if you'd like on that and then slaves in the armies we'll go into that and then uh, briefly like what were the historical conditions that led to decline of slavery in india and then um, then we'll go into the impact of slavery on the landscape in india like um a lot of things that are attributed to british colonialism who were you know you could say they were the successors of the mughal state uh, a lot of a lot of factors in indian society that are attributed to uh, uh, british colonialism can also uh, have arisen due to the due to the islamic imperialism so we'll go into that very briefly it's it's quite a long talk so i'll get into it really uh, quickly 
So in prehistoric India, basically, uh, when Megasthenes visited India, he said the Indians have no slaves and they don't even enslave foreigners. But obviously, this was quite erroneous, and uh, there were slaves. But it's just that he couldn't perceive the presence of slaves just because they were treated so well, or he, he they weren't you know uh, treated as badly as elsewhere in the world at the time because you know Greeks, Romans. the islamic empires everyone had slaves at the time um he thought he thought there were no slaves in india but they were there i'll go into what the arthashastra dictates for the treatment of slaves and all the rules the laws regarding that and uh, you know yeah so as i said they were treated of course there must have been abuse i'm not going to say that there was no slave abuse in pre islamic india but it was punishable by law so that's uh, important so i'll just uh, you know the manushmriti lays down human rights for slaves it it's not they're not dehumanized they're not treated as badly as in the as in the islamic institution so briefly what the arthashastra says about slavery uh, you know this slide looks like a lot but i'll just quickly read out the most pertinent information uh, it may be a little small also for you guys to read um basically the enslavement enslavement of any human being any free person is punishable by a fine and the fine is incremental according to the caste of the person who is uh, involved so a uh, fine of 12 panas and for a vaishya it's 24 for a kshatriya it's 36 and for a brahmana it's 48 so you know it is a crime to sell people who who were not uh, slaves and then uh, you know look at this um if any person steals an animal or abducts a male or female slave uh, they should have both their legs cut off or pay a fine of 600 panas and then um, one of the major one of the major uh, differences between the islamic uh, uh, institutional slavery and uh, what we saw in pre islamic india was that was the treatment of female slaves the female slaves were not for sex slavery they uh, could not be purchased for that purpose and in case in case a man defiles the daughter of his own male or female slave he should pay a fine but also provide the maiden with an adequate nuptial fee and jewelry and if he raped his female slave he would have to set the slave save slave free so look at this when a child is begotten by a female slave both the child and the mother shall be recognized as free and there's a major uh, difference because in islam as you'll see in the next slide in islam the purpose of slavery and concubinage is the production of children and sex and domestic labor so that's a huge difference between you know how uh, uh, slaves were treated in both i'll just go to the next slide because you guys can read this later so yeah these are the quran pertinent quranic verses about slaves sex uh, sex slavery distribution of slaves enslavement of infidels obviously it's uh, kosher to enslave infidels uh, all their property becomes yours um, all their uh, plunder is yours their women and children become yours so obviously it's ordained by uh, islam which we know so muhammad by introducing the concept of a religious war against infidels and denying human rights to these captured infidels he sanctioned slavery on an unprecedented scale he himself is said to possess 59 slaves and his close companion owned about 1000 and you know the interesting thing an arab philosopher by the name ibn khaldun he said 
slavery is a divine providence and uh, infidels are cured by the uh, by the by slavery bringing them into islam by slavery so slavery was viewed as a positive thing that brings more infidels into islam into the house of islam so that's just proof of their uh, dehumanizing uh, uh, you know view of them and this slide this slide is kind of unrelated it's about the barbary um, slave trade but uh, i just wanted to mention it because it's important to put into context the theological justification then what i mean by this is it's not just written in a book somewhere it's put into action it's policy so what happens is uh, the barbary coast which is like the entire north africa north of africa like morocco algiers you know the horn so this area all the islamic empires there they pirated uh, the seas for slaves they took part in the slave trade quite aggressively and what happened was in um, i think say in the late 1700s they captured an, a neutral peaceful american ship and they would do this quite often with uh, european ships and american ships but um, i think some europeans had some uh, treaties with them so they would leave them alone you know if they paid them and all that but when american slaves were captured uh, thomas jefferson and john adams went to meet the ambassador of tripoli and then he said you know uh, he said you know why do you capture the uh, neutral you know peaceful american uh, sailors and then uh, the ambassador said you know it said in the quran that i can like i'm doing it like so so it, i'm just trying to say that it's a matter of policy and not just something related to religion it enters into politics it enters into policy it enters into action so it's not just uh, you know written in a book but you know it's just not uh, ignored by the most of the followers that's not the case okay yeah so the hidayah it's it's a, it's a basically a compendium on islamic law and it was based on uh, the quran the hadith and the four schools of uh, islamic jurisprudence and it basically lays down all the laws for uh, uh, muslims to subdue infidels and enslave them take their women and children etc and uh, why it's important is because um this was this was the document that was used in islamic empires in india uh, in all their uh, dealings so uh, whenever they sanctioned uh, conquest whenever they sanctioned enslavement it was justified using the hidayah and, and their uh, their islamic scholars would you know judges would put put these into action basically in in the indian subcontinent so that's why it's important uh, it has you know everything related to uh, taking captives making converts ordering massacres and basically this rule of law was followed wherever islamic empires were established so including not just indian subcontinent but you know even farther in southeast asia um and similar to the hidayah we had aurangzeb who came up with the fatwa-i alamgiri what he did was he um, he he thought the hidayah wasn't serving wasn't you know it was it was fine but what happened was uh, there were a lot of contradictions within the hidayah so what happened was islamic scholars would debate them and all these contradictions and arguments would keep coming up so he wanted to solve this once and for all and what he did was he uh, hired about 500 experts in islamic jurisprudence from madina baghdad and uh, delhi and lahore and and paid them like 200000 rupees or 2 lakh rupees rather 
um, and then compile the entire Sharia law into the fatwa Alamgiri and quite egregious stuff it has. Uh, it obviously fixes the, I mean, it tries to fix the prices of slaves, but they're also vary, variable according to the ruler and the local, uh, you know, conditions. But, um, you know, it, it basically has all the, all the Islamic laws related to slaves. And this, this book was quite important. Even, even after the death of Aurangzeb, it became one of the most uh, um, important documents of Islamic per, uh, civil law in uh, India. And, uh, you know, it has stuff like a Muslim man's right to, to have sex with a captive slave girl. Um, and then he can have he can uh, have a uh, sex with another slave, another man's slave girl if he has his permission. And then uh, the inability of uh, infidels and slaves to inherit property. And there's another uh, big difference in uh, is, um, Islamic slave trade as slavery as it existed and uh, pre-Islamic uh, India who, who had slaves, but they could inherit property. They could purchase they could purchase land. They, their property did not revert automatically to the master. They could have children without the permission of the master and the children inherited their wealth. And also um, they could also purchase their own freedom. So in the Adhishastra, it says that um, if, you, if you pay the same amount that, uh, that, that was paid for you, you can purchase your own freedom from your master. So that's another thing. Obviously, in Islam, the rules for manumission are many. I'm not going to get into that much. Uh, so yeah, if a purchased female slave has too large breasts or too loose or wide a vagina, the purchaser has the right to return her for a refund. So you know, all of this, it, it, uh, it uh, protected the rights of the master and not the slave. If a master uh, beat the slave within an inch of death, he was still refundable. So you know, that's what it was. And uh, just to put into context the Fatwa Yalamgiri uh, and the importance it had, I'm not going to spend much time on this slide. I think I'm basically when, uh, when the power shifted to the British, they used the Fatwa, they actually translated the Fatwa Yalamgiri three or three or four, like including uh, Neil Bale, as I've given here, and a few more um, uh, British, Britishers who knew Persian and Arabic. They translated uh, the Fatwa Yalamgiri and used it to formulate laws for the Muslims in India and also for, uh, I, I mean, as personal law and also uh, to craft some uh, common law for, you know, everyone. So it's quite an important document. I highly recommend reading uh, The Reinvention of Sharia under the British Raj. It's a paper I'll send. I'll like post a link later. It's, it's really interesting um, how these laws were incorporated into Indian law. And then, um, yeah, so the origins of racial pre prejudice in Islam. So there's something called the curse of Ham. And the curse of Ham is from the Old Testament. It's given here, where basically he looks upon Noah and looks upon his kind of a dirty thing in the Bible. So he looks upon Noah, you know, weirdly. So I not weirdly, but like he looks upon him you know, with uh, glint in his eye, so to speak. Um, and then he gets cursed to, to eternal slavery. Um, and then Canaan, uh, Canaan and Ham both, uh, eventually eventually in uh, both biblical and uh, Islamic uh, uh, literature, uh, this becomes the basis for enslaving any dark-skinned peoples. So Ham was said to be dark, Canaan is uh, said, said to have been 
black and blackness and slavery went together were associated and um, uh, ibn azra ibn azra also uses this uh, same uh, word uh, for hindus banuham which is like dark skin that's what it meant then it might have been a misinterpretation misinterpretation of hebrew but uh, for all practical purposes that's what it meant uh, and even an early christian work uh, names hindus as uh, indians as uh, dark skin people um who became slaves and who were you know cursed to eternal slavery and um, so you know uh, gradually the curse evolved into um all those whose skin was black were uh, meant to be enslaved and uh, blacks were blacks and indians this mainly covered blacks and indians and what happened was uh, in uh, in both uh, roman greek and uh, jewish and christian and islamic literature um there was a confusion between ethiopians and indians so ethiopians they used to be confused with each other because they were both dark skinned um and uh, they're both they're they're all described as coarse ugly low you know uh, bernard lewis wrote a book about this race and slavery in the middle east and he quotes many muslim accounts which which uh, which uh, calls black skinned indians and africans as ugly stupid dishonest frivolous foul smelling and you know uh black women with the same epithets so there was quite a dependence on this curse for the justification of uh, slavery and as slavery increased increased in the islamic world the dependence on this curse increased also so that's an important thing and uh, you know rumi as we see in rumi's work in persian works not just rumi but other persian writers as well would frequently use uh, um the word uh, you know describe hindus as you know uh, dark and uh, meant to be slaves you know uh, and in in his masnavi he writes you know is he, is he a hindu then throw him from the roof and he also says infidel hindu india is an ascendant of uh, india's saturn himself so they so hindus in persian literature are always regarded as ugly black and evil who you know like dark, unclean black dogs who are supposed to be enslaved yeah so now we're getting into the uh, meat so to speak so the markets in central asia while they dealt with all races of uh, slaves uh, indian slaves especially began entering these markets with the first uh, arab invasions of india the islamic conquest of india and uh, as as the conquests uh, increased in number frequency and uh, uh scale uh more and more indians flooded the slave markets abroad so the greatest factors contributing to the increased supply of indian slaves were military conquests and tax revenue policies of muslim rulers in the subcontinent so as you know um the tax policies were extremely exacting and uh, unfair and hindu peasants uh, were taxed so heavily that they would often sell their own uh women and children or even enter into slavery willingly just to pay off their uh, debts so you know that's one of the major reasons uh for the for the numbers of indian slaves that entered the markets and they and they were also in demand because indians were quite um, were quite skilled in all kinds of labor not just construction but agriculture pastoralists um you know textile brick making they were they had quite a few skills and because of their skill skills they were quite uh, in demand in 
uh, Central Asian markets um, and also as sex slaves. Uh, so, and and many of these artisans and uh, um, you know those skilled in labor and construction, they were all uh, employed in building uh, Central Asian architecture. So maybe you'll look upon uh, Central Asian medieval architecture differently if you know that a Hindu slave or a Hindu artisan worked on it, you know. Um, they were also employed in soldiering, maintaining irrigation canals, textiles, pottery, carpentry. So everything that India had going, all the industries that India had going, all the factories, they, they employed slaves for those purposes because Indians were skilled. And also affluent households in Central Asia owned quite a few slaves. So gardeners, pastoralists, agricultural labor, domestic labor, um, you know, there were just teeming with slaves. So yeah, just be before I get into the history, I just want to talk about the Hindu Kush, which is which used to be called uh, uh, Abyssinian Persian, but uh, the term Hindu Kush was introduced, I think, around 1080. The first known use is on a map in uh, 1080. And uh, Hindu Kush, as you know, means Hindu slayer, and Hin and because as they were, you know, as Hindu slaves were tied up and uh, taken across the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan the harsh climatic conditions would kill off of quite a few of them. So it was called the Hindu Slayer and Ibn Batata attests to this in his uh, travels, a book of travels. And you know, the the mortality rate for transporting slaves across the subcontinent is quite high. So when we see, uh, say, 50,000 or 100,000 slaves reaching the markets abroad, you know that they started with 20 or 30 percent more because uh, there's the mortality rate is high. Some of them would fall behind and would be killed. Um, I even read an account uh, that took place somewhere in Egypt where uh, if, if a group of slaves were being uh, led along and some of them fell behind, they would just be killed uh, or hung from the nearest tree and, um, and not just killed, but uh, they would make the other slaves carry that head because the, the dude doesn't want to be accused of... Uh, killing off some of the slaves or selling them by the master. So he, he gets the heads back to the master just to make sure the count is correct. So, you know, that the, the horrific treatment can't be forgotten when we talk about this sort of thing. So just to, I'll just briefly go over the history a little bit. Starting from the Arab invasion of Sindh. So when, so Kasim was essentially the first proper successful Islamic conquest of India. And he entered India in 712, and he first attacked Deval near Karachi, and he and that uh, fort was garrisoned by about 4,000 Kshatriya soldiers and 3,000 Brahmanas, and uh, all males above the age of 17 and up were put to the sword, and their women and children were enslaved. 700 beautiful females who had taken shelter in the nearby temple were all captured along with their valuable ornaments, clothes adorned with jewels, and they were obviously uh, sold into sex slavery. So Kasim dispatched one-fifth of the legal spoil to Hajjaj, who was the governor of the Umayyad Caliphate at the time. And, you know, he did this in whichever city he attacked. So uh, if, we, if we look at the city names, like I'm, I didn't, uh, some of the information isn't even available of how many people he took. But all we know is that in, in about three years, he, he's said to have taken approximately 300,000 infidels back to Central Asia. So uh, the plunder and loot, as we know, he attacked India quite a few times and uh, the plunder and loot just now unimaginable and enslavement I'm focusing on enslavement and not destruction of temples and all that so just uh, 
unimaginable scale of uh, destruction and you know when he attacked uh, rever he he massacred 6000 men and enslaved 60000 of their dependents including their women and children and of these 30 young ladies were of royal blood uh and he sent them all to hajj so this is just a picture of a mosque in multan and why he chose uh, this is because uh before multan was attacked it was a huge uh, it was a huge center of uh, surya worship in uh, ancient india especially in the 6th century onward and uh, when uh, hyen sang uh, came to multan in 641 uh he he reported uh and multan is named after uh, moolasthana which is a centrally located aditya temple in the middle of the city and uh, so when huen sang came he he described the surya idol there inside the temple which was made of solid gold and it and his eyes were of uh, rubies so you know just the grandeur and the wealth was unimaginable in ancient india ghazni yeah so we know we know ghazni attacked uh, you know ghazni attacked india about 17 times and each time he would obviously take uh, as many slaves as he could and uh, in the year uh, uh, 1000 to 1002 he said to have taken 500000 uh, people captive of both sexes and these were all and ghazni is especially well recorded because his uh, he had a personal chronicler who was alutbi and utbi uh, people say utbi's numbers are exaggerating but i mean exaggerated but uh, even if you of 500000 even if you take half that's still a huge number of people that are enslaved by him he sold most of them in central asian markets and as you can imagine central asian markets you know turkey uh, uzbek all these markets swelled with indian slaves and as i said they were also in demand so the prices went down which i'll get into later so again taking slaves was a matter of routine in every expedition and only when the numbers were exceptionally large did they receive the notice of the chroniclers so numbers that are are available speak for themselves yeah so you have to you have to project these numbers a little bit into his uh, other invasions and uh, just to just to talk about uh, another one of his conquests so when he attacked kanauj he apparently returned with uh, 53000 captives and each of these the prices dipped of indian slaves so low that they were sold for as little as 2 to 10 dirhams and these were uh, this was attested to by utbi and as he says you know the markets of uh, iraq and khurasan were filled with them and uh, the prices went uh, down okay and then yeah i just want to touch about king jebal really quick because it's uh, interesting and also um i don't want you guys to think that there was no resistance ever to these uh, invaders and also yeah just just to before again to this i just want to cover you may be wondering how is it possible to enslave that many men and kill their uh, and you know um kill them and enslave them so easily weren't they armed weren't they fighting yes they were they had they had t- certain techniques to enslave that uh enslave in large numbers and uh, basically and and they were highly specialized uh, uh islamic soldiers so suppose you take ghazni he had uh, he had uh, a warriors about 6000 warriors with him 6000 or 5000 men if i'm not wrong and they were all spe- they were all specialized in rounding up slaves and uh, just plundering regions so what they would do is when they approached a certain region they would first put to death 
all the armed men so they would uh, round them up and circle them on their horses or whatever and they would tie them up first and just put them to death and then what happens is whoever's watching is just terrorized so when when uh, when it comes their turn they don't really react or you know try to fight back because they they don't want to be put to death so they so in that respect they were they were you know they submitted very easily because just the number the terrorization of the uh, human psyche you know uh, their spirit was broken um they 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 don't want to be torn away from their children and women so they sub they many a time it, they had to submit if you if you to think about it that way and and you know um in many many regions they resisted in fighting these people off and um, if they couldn't they they all ran away into the jungles uh and you know and abandoned their homes and just ran with their children the, with their women and children so uh it's not that each each and every conquest was successful even though we are talking about the successful ones because that's where the largest number of people were enslaved and i'll get into that a little bit later but basically just to, just to talk about jaypal really quick he was the hindu shahi king of uh, afghanistan his capital at kabul and he he succeeded in fighting off ghazni quite a few times until this one unfortunate time when um when there was a snowstorm up in the mountains and uh, uh and ghazni you know he won and he took the king and king and all his relatives and his sons into captivity and uh, most of the royalty he he he, he basically paraded around paraded jaypal around in the markets of uh, khurasan to be sold like a common slave um and this this was this is the humiliation that nobles were subjected to whenever they were captured because um it was quite important to them for the royals who who were defeated to be subjected to this sort of humility and not just royals but even the common men were obviously but it was especially uh, the the royalty was especially singled out to be subjected to humiliation so yeah this is just a picture of the snowstorm from hutchinson's uh, travels just briefly about the sultanate i'm not going in chronological order i'll just uh, go over the major conquests uh, by the sultans um so after the arab invasions the sultanate was when muslim rule was truly established in india right so uh the same policy of uh, conquest and enslavement and also taxing and enslavement uh was uh, practiced by them and uh, in fact and all the all the sultans owned a large number of slaves their their palaces were filled with them their militaries were filled with them their um, they employed them in building and construction as as I'll get into later but you know all of them owned tens of thousands of slaves um, harems with 3000 4000 5000 women and you know eunuchs everywhere to guard these harems so you know the the scale was just unimaginable so the slave king balban um he's uh, he ordered his subordinates to uh enslave whoever refused to pay tax so whoever defaulted on their you know obscene revenues uh were enslaved and this contributed quite heavily to the number of people that were enslaved and also they took away a substantial portion of their agricultural produce so all their policies contributed to the increase in the number of slaves so you have to put these into context um of how all these factors are contributing to put pressure and also their no- nobles going out and con- conquering new areas and bringing back slaves so 
like for example uh, when ebak uh, ebak uh, who was the slave of uh, the military general of gori uh, when he invaded gujarat 50000 infidels were dispatched to help and from the heaps of this uh, um slain the hills and the plains became unoccupied um more than 20000 uh, slaves uh, and uh, cattle beyond calculation fell into the hands of victors so every time these people went out on conquest um they they would just stay slave in unimaginable numbers um when he attacked kalinjar 50000 men came under the collar slave and in um, in the 13th century as i said balban who was known as a slave king he is uh, reported to have defeated a hindu army in uh, ramtabhur and uh, taken captives beyond computation and then um, barani says that kilji owned uh, i don't know if it's barani actually i'm sorry barani i mean excuse my pronunciation in arabic i don't know these words but and i've never said them out loud actually so kilji owned about 50000 slave boys and had an additional 70000 engaged in construction um and in summarizing the feat of slave taking of uh, gauri and aibak uh, um it said that even poor muslim householders became the uh, owners of numerous slaves and 3 to uh, 400 okay that's not important okay coming to tughlaq uh tughlaq tughlaq is one of the sultans who had some of the hugest numbers of slaves that we can even imagine under his employ and he was also quite successful in uh, using these slaves for like construction and all that in fact um so so he he would he had very he had very efficient techniques of uh, enslaving uh, hindus so he commanded his uh, officers to capture slaves whenever they were at war and bring the best of them to the court a fifth of the slaves were always uh, dispatched to the caliphs with every islamic ruler so slave taking uh, especially in the case of tughlaq uh, wasn't confined to wars so not just their uh, agricultural policy which drove peasants to poverty and uh, drove them into slavery but also um, he had this uh, unique uh, method of forcefully taking uh, uh, slaves which i'll get into in the next slide but basically firosha what did he do with this many slaves and the answer to that is he undertook some of the most massive construction projects known in delhi so so although all the sultans did this uh, so many of the sultans whenever they ascended the throne uh, they would build a new city uh, just to make a name for themselves and have their own legacy so so like that uh, firosha built uh, firozabad near uh, delhi and uh, it was a huge uh, city uh, it had mosques palaces halls of private and public audience various utility buildings and this is a picture of uh, the palace of firuz and he just uh, stole the ashokan pillar and just stuck it on top there but but you know the, all the all the hindu slaves that he took were employed in uh, construction of all these cities one second so this was a system by which uh by which firosha took quite a few slaves um basically it was uh, modeled after the ottoman empire's cypriot uh, uh, may i just come in for a minute yeah sure you, you may go over the slides even if you want to do it briefly rather than passing them over okay. wherever you feel like saying that oh, you can go over it later maybe you can just briefly go over it yeah okay sure okay 
because I didn't want to take up too much time. But yeah, okay, I'll spend an extra minute. No problem. Uh, so yeah, so this was the policy. It, it's called Dev Shirme, and uh, it was the Ottoman policy of taking uh, Christian boys as slaves um, forcibly from their homes, and basically they would send an officer out to villages and just uh, randomly choose uh, young boys, generally of age seven, and uh, put them in uh, uh, put them into enslavement forcefully, and they would tra- they would convert them to Islam and train them. to fight their own people and train them in various you know military administration and all of this and uh, firoz shah used the same uh, policy and he would uh, you know take uh, seven year old boys and you know young boys from homes castrate them often and uh, employ them in his courts and uh, military and you know in uh, various uh, roles in in his uh, administration the establishment of domestic slave markets basically happened during the time of the sultanate um and uh, the distinction between the previous islamic conquest of india and what happened at the time of the sultanate was that uh the slaves more slaves were kept within the country and sold in domestic markets than sent abroad so the domestic uh, markets especially in delhi swelled with uh, swelled with indian slaves so what happened was so yeah so slave markets mushroomed across india especially delhi was a huge center for slaves and but unlike the markets of the islamic world the slaves in uh, delhi were generally just indians and not uh, of, of of various ethnicities one second so khusro wrote uh, that the turks whenever they pleased could seize buy or sell any hindu and they would sell them in these markets for quite low prices um peasants were carried off to various markets for uh, for being sold um and besides delhi and cities in bengal which were main centers for the distribution of eunuchs there's a mention of badaun in uttar pradesh mandor in rajasthan kabul malabar all these uh, places being thriving slave markets and uh, as i said they didn't generally deal in foreign slaves because if if the ruler if the sultan or noble or whoever wanted foreign slaves they weren't they weren't from the markets they were directly from traders who would bring them from central asia so they weren't generally seen in the markets except in port cities where you know the dutch and the portuguese would buy them and trade them so uh, that's one big distinction between central asian markets and uh, indian markets so portuguese uh, slavery as you know why i'm this is not related to islamic slavery in the sense that they're not muslim but they were uh, it's relevant because they were huge uh, customers for islamic slaves so not just did they buy a uh, huge number of slaves from the from the muslim traders but also they uh, they uh, would they they had a fleet of uh, ships and they would pirate islamic uh, uh, ships that were taking slaves uh, abroad so they so Uh, some accounts say that uh, almost the entirety of goa was full of uh, slave labor and the portuguese never lifted a finger so and they also they also dominated the indian seas and captured slaves sold them in the markets of hooghly tamluk pipli uh, ceylon goa even chittagong so they <clears throat> they just freely like with no conscious conscience whatsoever they just freely traded indian slaves 
um the dutch too but i i didn't i didn't include this here uh so yeah so the mughals obviously the mughals continued the same policies as the sultan they had slave markets they had slaves they had uh, everyone in their employ as i mentioned before so a major a major event uh that uh, that sent that uh, sent a huge number of sla- indian slaves to central asian markets was shah jahan's annexation of balkh so what happened was uh, i'm not going to get into what happened in the event but uh, basically uh before this if an indian slave sold in samarkand for two, 225 tanga after after this annexation they sold for as low as 84 so you can imagine the numbers of slaves that entered those markets because of uh, annexations of various uh, um indian cities so shah jahan is said to have beheaded in uh, leaders and enslaved whenever there was a rebellion there were quite a few rebellions local rebellions against islamic rulers and each time they would dispatch the slave armies and the uh, just armies to crush the rebellions enslave them again and uh, get their women and children so every time there was a rebellion also it contributed to the number of slaves that were in their employ so yeah babar nama even gives an account of uh, carrying slaves to sell like for great profits in kabul and kandahar i i'm i'm not uh, going into very detailed history because i want to give you guys an overview of um what was happening and what is the effect so nadisha when nadisha came uh, invaded india in 1738 he killed about 200000 and returned with a huge quantity of booty and number of slaves including uh, a lot of beautiful young girls um and the plunder was so huge that uh, nadir shah stopped taxation in iran for a period of 3 years following his triumphant return so you can imagine the amount of wealth that he took from india tipu tipu the freedom fighter he uh, in all his conquests he obviously followed the same islamic policy of enslavement conversion um and uh, subjugation of women and children in fact when he when he in his in the battle of travancore uh he enslaved and carried away about uh, 7000 uh, hindus and christians to seringapatnam where they were circumcised made to eat beef and forced to convert to islam so and, uh, and quite a few chroniclers again record uh, tipu's enslavement of uh, hindus yeah so just to distinguish between foreign slaves and indigenous slaves obviously turkic slaves and uh, quote unquote fair skinned uh, slaves from uh, central asia were highly prized and they in fact weren't sold in uh, indian markets as i said they were directly transported by traders to uh, to the rulers as per their requirement um and there was a there was sort of racist uh, uh attitude that existed so the indigenous slaves and converts were always seen as inferior even though they were all slaves and even though islam claims that everyone's equal in islam um they 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 were indian muslim slaves were seen as inferior and in fact uh, barani said that uh, was a staunch believer in the racial superiority of the turks and the baseness of indian muslims he re- recommended that teachers of every kind be stern and not to trust thrust precious stones down the throats of dogs that is to the mean ignoble worthless indian muslims so you know they they looked upon them as unworthy of even teaching them uh, 
uh, Islamic tenets. So um, there was a there was there was an element of uh, looking down upon Indian indigenous uh, slaves as inferior as, and that that stems uh, quite a bit from their uh, uh, Persian from the Persian attitudes of uh, racial inferiority. Um, so the prices of slaves. So generally, like I said, the Sharia law fixed prices of slaves, but also it was up to the rulers to kind of regulate the slave market because there were so many. Um, so the combined assault of Ghori and Aibak in the salt range yielded so large a number of captives that five Hindu captives could be bought for a dinar. So whenever there was a flooding of slaves into a market, as I said, this price would immediately go down because just the numbers of Indians that are there. You know, put into context that uh, sent, you know, Indian population at the time, say from 1200 AD onwards, was about 15 to 20 times that of the uh, Central Asian population and elsewhere. The Indian population was always high. So just the numbers that of slaves that, that were yielded from one or two conquests was so high because of the population itself. And as I said, uh, once once they killed off the armed men, it was quite easy to subjugate all the women and children and older men and just um, you know tie them up and transport them. During Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb's uh, reign, destitute peasants and their women were carried away by tax collectors, this we know. Um, so during Tughlaq's reign, uh, Batata found an excess of slave markets in, uh, slave, slaves in the markets of Delhi, making them very cheap and uh, slaves were sold at low price. Okay, yeah, we covered this. So obviously, attractive young women sold for higher prices, uh, skilled laborers sold for higher prices, domestic slaves sold for very low prices. So as I said, they fixed, they had to fix the prices to regulate markets. Um, Kilji fixed the price of a good-looking uh, young girl at about 20 to 40 tankas, and the price of a male slave at 100 to 200. Handsome young boys were sold for 20 to 40, and others that were less fit for labor for 7 to 8. And we, we have no way of knowing um, what's the value of this currency, but, uh, but you know, uh, it's human trafficking at the end of the day, so it's, it's too, any price is too low. So yeah, so the treatment of slaves and converts, um, so, so, so Muslim teachings of equality remained a dead letter for a long time and never realized in the consciousness of Arabs who roundly denied it in their day-to-day -day behavior. So the, basically the Islamic claim of egalitarianism, we don't see it anywhere, in the, especially in the treatment of low-caste Muslims. In fact, James Wise, he was a civil surgeon in Dhaka. He, he witnessed low-caste uh, converts to Islam not being allowed into mosques or even uh, graveyards. So from a social point of view, from a societal point of view rather, they were still kept in the fringes of society. There was not much be benefit to, you know, converting and uh, as in they didn't, they didn't automatically um, become uh, respected in the, in, the, in the foreign Muslims' eyes just because they converted. So Kanwar uh, Ashraf uh, noted that with the conversion to Islam, the average Muslim did not change his old environment, which was deeply influenced by caste uh, distinction and general social exclusion. So if there were if there was any uh, 
yeah i covered it actually that's that's enough yeah so just now i'm going to get into you know all the avenues in which slaves were employed so the major the major um industry was building and construction and all the medieval islamic architecture you see was slave labor uh especially hindu slaves um who were captured specifically for that purpose and uh looking at medieval islamic architecture in uh, india um the central asian islamic empires they 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 imported uh, huge numbers of uh, skilled artisans and labor uh, skilled labor from india so just to go over uh, um the rulers and what they did in india so yeah throughout islamic rule muslim leaders of india built mosques monuments mausoleums citadels palaces cities and repairs all of this was done using slave labor historians glorify islamic architectural monuments as the greatest muslim achievement in india so like even nehru nehru keeps saying you know they gave us uh, beautiful islamic architecture and he completely discounts the fact that all of this was horrifically someone says whenever whenever there was a whenever there was a building coming up it was always supervised by muslim masters with their whips so that's what that's the imagery that we have to get when we look at islamic architecture especially in delhi delhi's entire delhi architecture is just completely slave labor the, the sultans were famous for it so yeah um abak and iltutmish embarked on massive construction projects requiring large number of slaves mosques mothers i covered it in the case of tughlaq they would often build entire cities using slave labor and if they had if they fell short of slave labor they they'd uh, uh send their generals out to collect more so <clears throat> it was always the case that um, they uh, uh used slave labor in their massive construction projects so badata wrote that it's their custom that king's palace is deserted on his death and the successor builds a new palace for himself this happened with all the sultans so and and this and what happened was uh, most often uh, temples were converted into mosques and citadels and tombs or whatever so this so the uh, s- slaves would dismantle standing temples very carefully stone by stone carry the co- carved columns and pillars to the new sites and raise new structures and you know uh, just like in, just like in the qutub minar which i'll talk about next after this huge complexes of temples were converted into mosques using the same building materials and they would often you know de- deface all the carvings and repurpose the material so like the red fort hindus were enslaved in uh, large numbers uh, and were engaged in cleaning up dirt and constructing new cities whenever so basically in the medieval era uh, cities would become you know dirty uh, there was no modern sewage system so they would become dirty very quickly and uh, a new city would ne- would be needed to construct uh, to be constructed so they would order all their slaves to uh, clean up the old cities and uh, uh build new settlements uh, further away and that's how delhi expanded to such a huge city so every time a new sultan ascended the throne which happened frequently in the sultanate they would construct a new city and uh, to leave a legacy of their own um for instance abandoning iltutmish's old city balban built the famous red fort Bal- uh, batata testifies that it's the custom that uh, successes okay cover this um So yeah he noted that Delhi was the largest city in the entire Muslim orient 
made up of four contiguous cities built by four different sultans. So yeah, as I mentioned, the Qutub Minar. I I I'm using this just to uh, just as an example to um, highlight the the manner in which slave labor and skilled labor was used to uh, to undertake massive construction projects. So Ayubak started this uh, construction in uh, 1192, which was much before he established uh, Islamic rule in India. Um, the mosque was formerly occupied by an idol temple, converted into a mosque. So they would, as I said, deface all the Hindu uh, I icons, and they would uh, repurpose the pillars and building material to build uh, these uh, thing. And this is a picture of the Hindu pillars inside the Qutub Minar complex, actually. Um, so Hindu slave labor was invariably employed on a grand scale for construction, and to undermine and degrade the achievements of the infidels further, materials from destroyed temples would be used in the construction of Islamic structures. The undertaking of huge ventures in India ahead of establishing the firm foothold for Islam affirms that the declaration of the might and glory of Islam was an urgent and focal mission of the conquest. So as we see in Ibak's case, he, he uh, um, started the construction of the, the, the Qutub Minar quite early. So yeah, these are more Hindu pillars. These are some Hindu carvings on the inside of the Qutub Minar complex. Another example which, um, which exhibits uh, how many slaves they had in their employ is the Adaidin Ka Jopra, which is uh, it's in Ajmer and it is a group of three or four temples. And uh, when, uh, when Gauri defeated uh, Prithviraj Chauhan, he passed through Ajmer and he came across this uh, temple complex and he said, I want this convert into a mosque in 60 hours. And he told uh, he told his uh, he told his you know slave general Ebak, and uh, Ebak took uh, you know eighty thousand seventy thousand how many even men slave men they had, and he converted the entire thing into a mosque in sixty hours. Can you imagine how many men it took? So yeah, even in Central Asia, justice in India, the demand for skilled labor was high. For example, uh, when Timur uh, ransacked Delhi in the fourteenth century. He took about 100,000 captives, including several thousand skilled artisans, and they were enslaved and taken to Central Asia. And he used them for uh, the construction of his uh, famous Bibi Khanum mosque in Samarkand. So you can imagine how they would uh, uh, use uh, Indian slaves in, even if you take, if you take Marrakesh, Marrakesh, uh, all its, all its uh, medieval Islamic architecture, it was all built on slave labor. And most of them, not most, but uh, quite a huge chunk of them must have been Hindus because at the time they were the only uh, ones skilled in construction and art and workmanship to be able to construct such magnificent structures. So yeah, another uh, aspect in which slaves were employed by both the sultans, Mughals, everyone, were factories or you know the royal factories or workhouses, and they would produce uh, goods of every kind. Like you know, gold, gold and silver articles, uh, metalwork, textiles, perfumes, armory, weapons, leather goods, clothing, saddles, covers for elephants. So all of this was slave labor. In royal palaces and courts, they were employed in large numbers. They acted as spies. They were they they were employed in the revenue and postal departments, um, musicians. 
and this is an account of tughlaq slaves he had about 1200 physicians 10000 falconers 3000 dealers for dealers in articles required for hawking just to accompany him while hunting 1200 musicians 1000 slave musicians 1000 poets 2500 oxen 2000 sheep and other animals were slaughtered daily for the supplies of the royal kitchen you can just imagine the scale at which uh, slave labor was employed to run their you know grand lifestyles so sex slavery and concubinage the special interest of muslims in sex slavery was universal and widespread and there's a lot of evidence to attest to this in persian chronicles in fact muslim chronicles chroniclers derived extra delight in narrating anecdotes of the subjugation of women and the indulgence of muslims in uh, sexual activities so as muslim sultans started indulging in a life of debauchery they created huge harems by accumulating concubines in the thousands plus numerous gilmans and i'll get into gilmans later they are just uh, emasculated young boys um demand for beautiful girls and beardless boys made them a scarce commodity and their prices rose to about 500 tankas and sometimes even 1 to 2000 tankas um in spite of the low prices of slaves uh indian young indian girls were uh, especially valuable and people would pay up to 2000 tankas for them in the heyday of islam uh, court officials nobles high ranking generals governors had dozens to hundreds even thousands of slaves um even poor muslim households and shopkeepers often had many slaves including domestic and sex slaves the hidayah states that the object of owning female slaves as i said earlier is cohabitation and gen- generation of children so is in contrast with what artishastra says if you if you get a muslim woman pregnant the child and the woman are, are free so uh, sorry if you get a slave pregnant i'm sorry um which but but this is in like contrast to the islamic way which was that the more the more children your slave your slave woman had all of them would contribute to your uh, uh collection of slaves so you know and uh, obviously the mughals were especially known for their uh, huge harems in fact uh, jahangir is said to have uh, had 300 slave girls in his ever expanding harem even in his 20s so you can imagine by the end of it how many thousands of women he had akbar jahangir and shah jahan had about 5000 to 6000 wives and concubines in their harems Uh, and each of them had many slaves to care for them so each of them would have attendants who were also uh, women slaves and each of them would have eunuchs in their guard i mean to stand guard uh, so you know just huge number of uh, sex slaves so the so this kind of an important uh, subject because it's very unknown or rather it's not talked about much So basically this is one of the most cruel and dehumanizing aspects of islamic institution of slavery they would um eunuchs were always in high demand because eunuchs were used to guard the harems because they were um because they were uh, emasculated they were uh, more likely to show loyalty for their master and also if, if they couldn't have the fa- a family of their own they were more likely to want to please the master in order to uh in order to be respected when he is older so and also you know um they couldn't have virile men guarding harems obviously 
so they so eunuchs were employed uh, basically for that and uh, the two major races that contributed to eunuchs both in india and abroad were indians and uh, african so they were often castrated and especially knowing um the especially knowing the the africans were known to have to be uh, extra virile so they would always more often than not, men slaves would always be castrated so um so yeah i just cover in this slide where they were employed they were employed as guards in charge of harems and in the households of rulers and high officials they were employed as head of households nobility uh, trusted loyal slaves palace staff custodians of mosques tombs and other sacred places and and they were uh, objects of homosexual infatuation of many of the muslim rulers generals and nobles so khilji is said to have had uh, 50000 young boys in his personal services more many if not all were castrated tughlaq had about 20000 and then when aurangzeb sieged uh, golconda he uh, he is said to have emasculated about 22000 men so the major source of uh, eunuchs in india was bengal and awadh to some extent but bengal mainly bengal malabar um another thing i forgot to mention earlier was uh, slave this slaves were mainly traded by muslim merchants very few if not none were hindu in fact uh, i think i think ks lal writes in his book that um, the gujaratis were successful traders but you would never find them engaging in uh, slave trade of hindus it was just uh, unthinkable for them against dharma and uh, it was very rare to have hindu traders trading in slaves so that's just something to keep in mind that the entire slave trade employed uh, muslim traders and made them very rich yeah so muslim merchants would uh, would purchase heathen boys either directly from parents or from kidnappers that already castrated them if they weren't already castrated uh they would arrange for the operation by specialist surgeons and in and in india um it was generally done by the hindus of the vaidya caste so you know um islam has a um, islam is against mutilation of the body which is quite hypocritical because they would cut off the hands and uh, legs of slaves if they were caught stealing and all of that so uh, but um, in this case they they would not perform the castrations they would employ in in india it was the vaidyas but in egypt it was some other group so like that wherever wherever there was a market of eunuchs so, so non muslims were employed in the surgical process um the demand for eunuchs in nawabi nawabi uh, bengal and awadh remained unabated from Khilji's conquest, Bhaktiyar Khilji's conquest in the 13th century, up until as late as the mid 19th century, despite the disintegration of the Mughal Empire and the disruption of long-established trade patterns. So, the uh, young boys were often purchased cheap from Bengal, and Indian and other merchants carried them for carried them for sale throughout the world because um, eunuchs fetched a higher price than normal than uh, you know labor uh, men for domestic labor and all of that eunuchs fetched high price because not only were they a costly commodity to create the mortality rate was extremely high because obviously they didn't use uh, the best surgical techniques 
and uh, castration often involve, involved a penectomy. Uh, the mortality rate was extremely high. Um, some accounts say about one fourth of them died in the process of castration. So whoever survived, generally the traders would invest in the eunuch. They would uh, uh, teach them, you know, they would educate them and even uh, train them in arms and uh, all of that to make them more, uh, to make them fetch higher and higher prices. So eunuchs were not sold generally at the markets in Delhi because they were sold directly to courts or transported abroad for uh, sale uh, elsewhere. Indian eunuchs were found in the Ghaznavid court, in the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt, and Indians were one of the main races that supplied eunuchs. Persia seems to have received uh, eunuchs from Malabar through an overseas route. So I covered this, but yeah, Bengal was a major center. And just to uh, go over a few more details about Bengal, the um, Barbosa's uh, account was that the Moorish merchants of Bengal would travel up the country to buy heathen boys directly from the parents or from persons who steamed them and castrated them. So they were left quite flat. Many die from this and those who live, they train well and sell them. They value them as guardians of women and estates and, and for other low objects. They hold uh, eunuchs in high esteem. Many of them even became quite uh, rich and powerful men, as we'll see later. So the Aini Akbari, which is, you know, Chronicles of Akbar, it describes three categories of eunuchs from Bengal. Um, there's a typo here. It's Sandali, uh, as in sandal, Badami, and Kajuri. In the case of the first category, the entire genitals were removed. In the second, the pen part of the penis were le was left functioning. And in the third, testicles were either crushed or cut off. So, and there was probably a, there was probably a relationship between the procedure they were subject to and the race. So African men were subject to a certain thing and Indian men, uh, something else. The very, very few of them were not, were, you know, inborn uh, intersex. So yeah, even in Java, they describe uh, the sale, this production and sale of eunuchs. Yeah, so eunuchs, obviously, um, going into the colonial era, they were, uh, demonized as a criminal tribe and they came under the criminal tribes act of uh, i don't know the year but the british legislation and uh, they tried to drive them out of the cities you know drive them out from their social standing and many of them survived but uh, they were pushed to the fringes of society and i'm not going to get into the colonial policy and what they did to eunuchs but uh, just to touch on it just for a second so Gilman, as I mentioned earlier, were castrated young boys. They were mainly for uh, as sexual objects. They were they would often wear rich and attractive uniforms, beautified and perfumed, and they were in high demand because of the homosexual uh, homosexual infatuation of many of the Muslim rulers, generals, and nobles. And whenever these you know young boys would grow a little bit, uh, they would get another young boy because they want only the beardless young men uh, for their you know exploits and you know the the quran attests to this i don't need to go over that and um, persian poets obviously like glorify uh, these gilmans and uh, express their perverted passions and compose uh, lyrics uh, to you know beardless young men so yeah slaves in the military basically initially the military only had foreign slaves and uh, indian slaves weren't allowed to enter the ranks they were only employed as, you know, lowly foot soldiers. 
In fact, even Akbar's court was predominantly foreign. His minister recorded that nearly 70% of the royal appointments by Akbar were uh, slaves of foreign origin. So they would, so the rulers would directly purchase foreign uh, foreign slaves from markets abroad from traders. Although you couldn't find them in the market, they were purchased directly. That's what I meant. Um, the sultans also had an army mainly of foreign slaves. When Abak became the Abak was a obviously a slave initially, slave general of uh, Ghori, and when he became the sultan, he changed the policies a little bit. So when the Khilji dynasty came to the came to power, Hindus who were enslaved were, uh, and forcibly converted to Islam started appearing in the army, much to the annoyance of the Orthodox Muslims who detested the inclusion of lowly Indians in the armed forces. So, but you know, the Khilji dynasty had quite a few uh, looming threats from uh, external threats to their uh, sovereignty. So they had to, they were forced to employ uh, local, locally in the local converted Muslims in their armies. And when there were Indian slaves in Muslim armies, as I said, they were foot soldiers. They were uh, slim pickings, as they say. And um, like this Portuguese uh, uh, official describes, he said that they carry swords and daggers and they uh, they were fixed at the at the lower ranks, such as the infantry. And if, if when they went on a military campaign, they would uh, clear jungles and prepare roads for the army. And uh, they were they were basically the lowest of the low within the Muslim armies. So Kafur was a Malik Kafur was a famous, uh, quite a famous successful general uh, of uh, Khilji, and he went on many many uh, um, campaigns in South India, captured thousands, tens of thousands of slaves, and he was actually a Maratha Hindu who was described as very beautiful who was converted into a eunuch and uh, he was qu- quite the object of affection for Kinji who actually put him in charge after he died. So the decline, uh, the decline coincided with the decline and decentralization of the Mughal army. Um, the supply of Indian slaves to Central Asia dwindled in the 18th century as their military expansion came to an end. And this is also compounded, compounded by the general exclusion of slaves from tax revenue systems of successor states like the British and the cultural separation of India from its neighbors. Okay, that's not that relevant. The combination of these factors uh, de- resulted in a general decline in the exportation of Indians to the Central Asian markets. And this left, this left Central Asian markets little recourse but to look elsewhere. So they started pulling quite large numbers of slaves from na- neighboring uh, Iraq and Iran, uh, Iraq mostly. So Shivaji also outlawed, uh, uh, I think today is the anniversary of his uh, coronation, um, I think 347 years ago, so June 6th. Um, so he he was one of the first uh, to oppose the Islamic uh, policy of uh, mass enslavement, the institution of slavery. He outlawed slavery in his, uh, in his, uh, you know, dominion, um, and um, um, even even Sambaji, Sambaji said that the English shall buy none of my people belonging to my dominions to make them slaves or Christians. So uh, the Marathas were in general extremely found it an abhorrent practice and uh, were extremely opposed to slavery, um, and that also contributed to the decline. We could say. So the impact of slavery. Uh, 
the the major the major impact would be obviously conversion skilling enslavement and we could say that the castration export and killing of hindus throughout the muslim rule probably contributed to a decrease in india's population observed from about 200 million in 1000 ce to 170 million in 1500 ce is a huge number so um, and also the thousands and millions of indian slaves that were sold in central asian markets they obviously affected central asian society and they became part of that society whether they were eventually emancipated or uh, whatever happened they became part of that ethnic landscape so just a number of indians abroad who used to be slaves in fact in uh, in his description of bukhara uh, alexander burns repeated the popular adage that three fourths of the people of bukhara are of slave extraction meaning that catch a random person on the road like they're mostly of they mostly of slave origin so it's crazy the number of indians that are taken abroad but you know if you think of if you think about uh, um africans even though they employed even though they bought and traded quite a few africans quite a few africans um they were generally castrated so they didn't leave progeny behind so they don't contribute much to the diaspora but indians do they they sort of blended into the ethnic landscape a large number of not castrated uh, domestic slave laborers taken there so so yeah we, so johar was first reported this is one of the impacts of slavery so johar was first reported following an islamic invasion so the, so the first known uh, uh, instance was when kasim captured sindh he said to have kidnapped and enslaved the women folk but uh, they but the women in the palace uh, set themselves on fire to to avoid capture and sexual violation uh, this practice was largely unknown in pre-islamic india so we could say that uh, you know islamic uh, the islamic practice of uh, defiling women uh, following the defeat was uh, forced their hand uh, the trend continued even into the reign of akbar so in his conquest of chitor he ordered the massacre of about 30000 surrendered hindu peasants for supporting rajput princes and uh, when when 8000 rajput soldiers were slain their women about 8000 in number were who were ordered to be enslaved they embraced death by jumping into the fire uh, to avoid dishonor and sexual slavery and actually chitor witnessed three major um, occurrences of johar so during khilji's conquest bahadur shah and akbar so another factor is that it worsened sati since widow remarriage was not allowed in hinduism if there was a young widow she generally it wasn't compulsory but she generally would not only did were widows kind of uh, outcast in uh, society so it wasn't the life they wanted but to avoid to avoid kidnapping and conversion and sexual assault they would often uh, kill themselves by embracing sati so especially if young they were particularly targets for for uh, enslavement by the muslims and if you take malabar the mopla muslims were a rather small minority but they would still kidnap hindu women and uh, even in the 18th century they would sell them to european traders and we see this even now in pakistan and bangladesh where young women are uh, targets of uh, sexual slavery conversion um kidnapping so 
um, it's a huge factor in even in child marriage because because uh, young women want to be protected from the islamic uh, okay i'll get into that later but right now yeah so the caste system worsening this is what i alluded to earlier i was trying to say that whenever there was a siege of a certain uh, region they they would sink or swim together the hindus would generally sink or swim together and uh, they would if they couldn't stage a they couldn't stage a uh, proper fight to oust them they would often run into the jungles together so they would uh, try to make a living or like just subsist on fruits and nuts and animals inside the jungles and these jungle dwellers became outcasts in hindu society so um they became the new untouchables or they added to the population of low caste rather and uh, the main reason for this was you know eating meat probably uh, because once they ate meat very few upper caste would accept them back into their fold so you know um in some muslims probably took away quite uh, a chunk of indian outcasts into the islamic fold but kept them socially where they were earlier and they also worsened the institution by making it more rigid as well as pushing a large number of hindus down the social ladder so they would not just would not not only would they uh, try and escape from uh, you know various conquests death enslavement they would uh, they would uh, they also lived and uh, waged revolts together so there were quite a few of these uh, a uh, groups that would uh, spend their life in the fringes of society just to escape uh, enslavement and this adds to the cre- this you know this goes into the creation of thagi which was like a which the british thought was a caste actually but they weren't they were just thugs like as i said they were forced to go into the jungle so they made their living they made their living uh, robbing caravans that passed by and you know they they turned themselves into a band of robbers so again i mentioned the criminal tribes act this is one of the quote unquote tribes that were uh, included in that uh, and the british tried to out- outlaw them and this was this was unknown prior to islamic invasions of course there were robbers and thieves but not in these numbers and not this organized and they they were they sort of organized themselves as a cult later um, and they believed in goddess bhavani like so they sort of organized themselves and this was unknown in uh, pre islamic india so uh, for instance uh, hain sang traveled to nalanda and said you know in money matters they are without craft they are considered they are not de- deceitful or treacherous so it's quite alarming to see the number of thugs that existed who were highway robbers in india and you know this is a huge subject i won't get into this here but it's um, and as i said whenever there was a rebellion or like a organized uh, conquest they would often force many of the uh, able bodied men into these sort of things because they can't uh, they couldn't survive otherwise this is basically kind of unrelated but i find it interesting so this is the skull of uh, ganga bishun he was he was a thug who the british designated as a thug actually and his skull is one of the seven of you know a few hundred skulls in the edinburgh phrenological society and this was back when the british thought phrenology was an actual science but you know we know now that it's pseudo science but they were trying to figure out 
if there's a connection between the the measurements the ethnography of the skulls of these thugs and between other indians and obviously first of all obviously that's bs uh, first of all the thugs weren't all the same caste for example this ganga bishun and one of the other skulls they have were both brahmins so a large number of castes and uh, made up uh, the thugs because they were all obviously forced into it and uh, when the british came around uh, they were all hung mercilessly for example this uh, ganga bishun he was retired for some 8 years and someone some british official came to his village and asked someone is this guy a thug and he said yeah so he was just taken and hanged so that's the way the british did it but i won't get into it here yeah so as i said justice sati and johar were islamic creations i mean sati may not have been but sati definitely increased just like that the prevalence of child marriage definitely increased because not only did they want to protect their young women from islamic invaders by marrying them early they would betroth at a, at a young age so that they would be pro- somewhat protected from uh, uh, you know kidnap and uh, um enslavement and you know sexual defilement so even today there is a reality for hindu minorities in bangladesh and pakistan where there are high rates of kidnapping and rape of hindu women so we do see in societies where girls are abducted that they do marry their uh, girls early so it's a big factor in safety is a big factor uh, was a big factor in the prevalence of child marriage uh and that's it i think i forgot to add a few references i'll add them i'll share them with you guys later but yeah that's the end I just wanted to add um, a, a couple of observations having lived in the Middle East before when I was a child and having heard this from my parents that you know and it connects with what you said about the whole slave trade and the fact but how the Turks and the the Arabs looked at the invaded uh, controlled populations you know the dominated populations they really looked down on them so the Arabs actually still look down on Indian and Pakistani of course they do, yeah. it's a fact and yeah. this was told to us by someone who was arab my father when i was small but i heard about this he said actually arabs look at hindus with a sort of a grudging respect because they see them as people who were so dominant in control for such a long period of time but who did not buckle under whose ancestors did not buckle under the pressure and become muslim whereas these uh, muslims are actually scorned the most whether they realize they do realize it when they are there that's absolutely true yeah so they, this was, they yeah that's true and even even right now in indian society we see we see the same racial distinctions that exist the fair skinned muslims yes. the ashrafs yes the they have their castes are are, yeah. looked, are looked at as superior and the dark skinned indian muslims are racially inferior and that yeah. that holds good even within india and abroad so indian muslims the subcontinent muslims are looked down upon by the arab world that's yes that's very true true so coming back to i always look for solutions and the way forward <laughs> generally in my questions all right. this information uh, why don't you please write a book why don't you sort of get it out in a blog post tweet are... people need to know yeah, that's, that's one thing that's secondly another thing which i mean add uh, and i'm glad you put that point of johar i don't know if many people know about this this point about johar um, we all know about you know why uh, why johar was done but why were they burning themselves i actually got to know only about 5 years ago this i want to share with everybody it's because yeah it's because necrophilia necrophilia, necrophilia. <laughs> yeah this was a very important point and this is why i refused to watch that movie padmavat and all that because they don't show the reality i mean why would a whole lot of thousands of women want to burn themselves there are other ways of dying 
Yeah. But because this was another way of subjugation and humiliation. Yeah. You know, of, so, of yeah, so the defiling was quite common by the common. conquering uh, those Muslim armies. So if the royal women wanted to save their, uh, um, you know, their honor, they, okay. the only way they had was to burn themselves. Burn and that's themselves. quite a dramatic and quite harrowing uh, it is true and it connects with what you have said what you know the whole uh, what is endorsed in the religion exactly what you have to do i mean yeah. to the infinite yeah. so this observation thank you very much i do hope no. you make a book out of this or a capsule <laughs> there are so it. many books about this we, but i'll definitely share no, we all we need this information out there because this whole thing about mughals having built india and rubbish i mean you know we've had enough of that yeah i think you know i absolutely agree thank you thank you very much no thank you best wishes yeah we congratulate you for giving excellent presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I will call the national shame perpetrated by the Muslims in India. But my question is that uh, there is evidence that from 1 AD to about 1750 AD, India was the richest country in the world. Right. And our GDP was one fourth of the world. Meaning yeah. thereby that uh, the the whole world's income one fourth was in India. Right. Now uh, with that, uh, how uh, this slavery was prevalent, or was there so much of inequality in the society? And uh, second part of the question is: you call them all slaves? But there are some laborers also, say, who constructed the Taj Mahal, they were all slaves or are, are they were laborers? Yeah, so some, some of them were, most of them were slave laborers as far as we know, because as you know, especially in the case of the Taj Mahal, they were, their arms were cut off so they wouldn't build something so grand ever again. So they were, they were, they might have entered into it with a certain payment and, uh, accepted a payment and maybe even accepted the terms of uh, uh, being uh, dismembered after. But uh, as far as I know, in all the medieval Islamic architecture, mostly slaves were employed. There must have been artisans of various sorts that were paid and employed. And the other question you had, you said, uh, uh, were there slaves in uh, pre-Islamic India? As I'm, I covered this in the beginning of the talk, actually. Uh, yes, there were slaves, but they had human rights. You could not sell just randomly anyone and anyone you find. You cannot subjugate them. You cannot uh, capture women for sex slavery in pre-Islamic India generally. So um, I wouldn't say that ancient India's wealth was built off of slave labor. I would not say that. Only very rich, very rich uh, like nobles and royals owned a few slaves in their... Uh, um, for their employ in their courts and all that. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. So in the middle of the presentation, I don't know if you remember, but I mentioned the Kanhade, that book by Padmanabha. It, it had an account of uh, Islamic slavery that, uh, uh, that, was, that happened in Gujarat. So there were scattered texts. Many of these texts are in uh, unknown dialects, they haven't been translated. This text was discovered, I think, back in the, uh, I think, 50s or 60s or something, and it was translated by a scholar. Uh, so 
first of all many texts are lost many are untranslated many are sitting in manuscript archives there are definitely hindu accounts of this sort of thing we just haven't discovered enough of them to create a substantial case and another thing is um you have to understand that muslim chronicle see as i said again um muslim chroniclers wrote about this in a sort of like they're bragging about it and they're writing all these about all these conquests to gain favor from the caliphate they want to be more respected for um for uh, establishing uh, islam in infidel territory so so they have a vested interest in recording these things so carefully in such a detailed manner uh why uh, we are having a great civilization and uh, we have a uh, great astras and uh, main uh, very vidyas like that but why we can't resisted uh, uh, such people uh, they are uh, coming in small quantity they are uh, crossing hindu kush mountains and uh, uh, their uh, numbers also decreasing due to climate yeah. uh, why why can't uh, we resisted so there was quite a lot of resistance so so in my talk i didn't mention the instances of resistance from hindus but if you read uh, if you read sandeep balakrishna ji's book he he accounts even even as i said jaypala was conquered was captured yes, that was after he resisted the ghaznis uh, invasions quite strongly for a quite for his whole life so there was quite a lot of uh, resistance from hindus even local rebellions certain castes that took up arms and Uh, waged war against even even mughal armies and many of them were successful in winning their freedom and many were subjugated and enslaved so it's it's a matter of maybe there wasn't a large scale organized resistance like in the uh, muslim armies but uh, in the muslim conquerors case but uh, there were definitely smaller rebellions happening there were definitely hindu kings protecting their territories uh and that's how pockets of uh, north india remained uh, unconquered by muslims so in fact if you take egypt after the arab invasion entire egypt was uh, entirety of egypt was uh, islamized so to, quite quickly like in the span of 100 or 200 years so and they had a huge successful ancient pagan civilization they had wealth they had pharaohs they had so the, it, in other cases in most other countries it took them very little time to islamize the entire region in india you could say that it was very difficult due to the resistance we offered so in my talk i covered only the conquests obviously this is not to say that there wasn't resistance you have to i guess talk about it another day because it's a huge whole other topic and i was trying to focus on how people were enslaved so for that obviously i have to uh, go to the successful con- conflict right the conquest right you said that arthashastra says that a slave can buy his freedom from his master so he wanted to know that what gulam uh, i don't know if the pronunciation is right so he wanted to know uh, what gulam has been called in the arthashastra okay i didn't check because i didn't read the sanskrit but i can check and get back to you he is asking what is necrophilia necrophilia is the defilement of sexual defilement of corpses so as uh, the first person who asked the question i'm not sure of her name sorry um she mentioned why why do they need to kill themselves so brutally by burning themselves it's because they would defile the corpses after death 
and there are even instances of necrophilia back in Muhammad's time. Uh, so they, it's, it has a long association with you know necrophilia being I don't know if it's allowed but uh, prevalent. So um, their to to avoid uh, their corpses being uh, sexually de- defiled, they would burn themselves. I think you mean to say that this information needs to be disseminated and we need to learn about it. And I think there is a way to do it quite uh, well because, you know, if you see, if you take uh, US, um, they teach, they teach the transatlantic slave trade in their uh, syllabus and you can do it without riling up the white people against the black people and the black people against the white people. We don't, we, we have, they have a consciousness in their society of who was the, who was enslaved and who was not. And they have a consciousness of history. And they know their place and they know uh, who was the perpetrator and they, they know everything and it doesn't necessarily cause any further, uh, you know, uh, conflict in their society that already didn't exist. So there is a way to teach such subjects in a, in a neutral manner so that you put enough facts out there just to make people aware and if they want, they can read further. But yeah, you're right. This needs to be there. Uh, Delhi is glorified endlessly. Mughals are glorified endlessly. It's a big sham. It's not supposed. It's not what we're supposed to be teaching.